Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who will be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. Tonight's Speakeasy chat is being brought to you by Squeaky Cheese Productions on The Cutting Wedge. You can find them on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. My guest tonight is the founder of the audiobook production company Elephant Audiobooks. Kenny Papaconstantino, thanks for joining me in the speakeasy tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Kenny, did I get your name right? Yes, you did. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Those who are listening now won't know that I just spent about five minutes with you trying to get it right beforehand, but fortunately it came out right that time. I'm so glad you could make it in, Kenny. I've, uh, I heard about Elephant uh, a couple of years ago now, I think, and uh, it's just taken me a long time to uh, get to know you and the company and what you do. So glad you had a chance to come in and have a chat with me here. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so we are in a speakeasy, as you know. Uh, Kenny, what are you drinking tonight? Okay, so I wanted to bring something special, but I... I was so busy today. I ended up just grabbing a beer from my house. So oh, that's fine. It says it's called a terrible idea. It's a hazy IPA, and it's made by Twenty First Amendment Brewing, and it's from California, from somewhere. So it's not it's not local to Massachusetts. It's not special in any way, but um, it's it's crafty in, in a sort. I'm gonna it, open it right now. No, that's cool. And and what did you say the name was again? A bad choice. A terrible idea. <laughs> a terrible idea. All right, that's great. And actually, to be honest, what's funny is um, I know this isn't a video, but um, I didn't do this on purpose. But there's a, it's not an elephant, but there's a picture of like a woolly mammoth on the um, on the can. Yeah, that's cool. That's pretty close. <laughs> there's got to be got to be an elephant uh, stout or a beer out there somewhere. I know that there it, there is actually an elephant gin, and uh, they some of the proceeds of their sales go to elephant sanctuaries in. I believe it's Africa. I, I can't remember now exactly, but I believe it's Africa. Nice. So Elephant Gin, not sure about uh, the stout market, but uh, stout or IPA market, but uh, but animals are out there on, on the labels. Um, well, that's cool. So I'm, I'm not much of a beer drinker or uh, IPA or stout or any of those. Um, I, tonight, am also, uh, for me, having a new drink once again. Uh, my wife has made vanilla extract a couple of times, and to do that, you take vanilla beans and uh, soak them in vodka, and boom, you got your extract. And she read something online recently saying that you could also do it using spiced rum. So she wanted to give that a try, so I said, sure, I'll buy some spiced rum, and then, of course, I had to drink some spiced rum. So uh, I went out and got a bottle of Captain Morgan's. I have never had spiced rum before. And so I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to try something new. So scanned the internet, looked into my cocktail books, and uh, I found something called a spiced rum cocoa martini. Uh, so it's four parts spiced rum, one part they call for for something like Godiva chocolate liqueur. But about I think it was about thirty years ago, Godiva changed their recipe to be more of a cream, like a Bailey's Irish cream kind of thing instead of the more like a creme de cacao. And uh, so I've got something called Nirvana, which is a chocolate liqueur. And, uh, and so that's what I'm having tonight, a, uh, a spiced rum cocoa martini. So Kenny, thanks for coming in tonight. Cheers. Yes, cheers. And uh, I'm going to try this right now. It sounds awesome. Uh, I have to say that's pretty damn good. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's not too sweet because it's only got a little bit of the liqueur, but uh, but yeah, that, that's pretty darn good. Uh, I hope the IPA is good too. 
Yeah, it is good. It's very good. Cool. All right. So you said that you are in uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a town called Arlington. That's right next to Cambridge, which is right next to Boston. Oh, okay. All right. I have certainly heard of uh, Boston, and I've heard of Arlington, but I think it's a different one. Yeah, and Cambridge is you know where um, Harvard and MIT and um, a number of other universities are. All those important places. Yeah. So did, yes. is that where you're from? Did you grow up there? Yeah, I grew up in a town called Tingsboro that's on the New Hampshire border, um, about 45 minutes northwest of here. Between, It's a small town, about 10,000 people, but it's sort of sandwiched in between Nashua, New Hampshire and Lowell, Massachusetts. Those are two, they're not big cities, but they're you know 100,000 people cities. So what happens in Lowell? I've actually heard of Lowell, Massachusetts, and I don't know why. It's like an old mill town. I, 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 I don't want to say anything bad about it because years ago, I would say it was becoming an old sort of a rundown mill town. And it's had a resurgence recently where a lot of the mills are getting rebuilt into condos and a lot of young families are moving there. So I wouldn't say a whole lot happens there. There's a University of Lowell that's um, UMass, University of Massachusetts in Lowell, I should say, that gives it a little notoriety. But um, Hmm. maybe this is just a throwback to my high school days when I went to Lowell High School. And uh, at some point I mentioned Lowell and somebody asked me if I went to uh, a college in Massachusetts. I don't know. Oh, maybe that's why. No, I mean, the, it, you know, it's it, it was um, historically, I think the first um, I'm going to get this wrong, but the spinning Jenny or the um, one of the cotton mills, um, I'm going to get it wrong. But there's there's some kind of textile machine where it hmm. started in Lowell. All right. Uh, so that's where you grew up and now you're still there. Did you go away to school anywhere? Did you uh, just end up staying close to home? Yeah, I went to Berkeley College of Music, which is in in Boston, right? <clears throat> right in the um, right in the center of Boston. Cool. So yeah. I wasn't too wasn't Ber- too far from home. Berkeley, uh, big name there. Yeah. No, it's cool. That was um, between two thousand and two thousand five. What'd you do there? I majored in music production. I was a guitar player first of all, so you everybody has to play an instrument because it's a music college, um, kind of first and foremost. And I was a guitar player, um, and I got I had always been involved, kind of in the recording and production of my friends' bands and my own bands in high school. So my track was to go there and to do music production. So that's what I did. And then I also stayed an extra year and got a second major in music business. Music business. That's interesting. I didn't realize that you could get a major in music business. What what is what does that uh, consist of? Well, it was, I mean, you you learned a lot about the unions and sort of the structure of how the labels are made um my track was entrepreneurship so most of my focus classes had to do with forming your own business i always wanted to form my own production company so you know i kind of used the classes to follow that track um but it was mostly entrepreneurship based on my end but you know record labels and all that kind of stuff if you really wanted to do it that's really cool i know that uh, certainly in the audiobook world and and just voiceover in general i mean when i started out 20 years ago that's the one, one of the major pieces of my education that was missing and why I really failed at voiceover initially because I had no idea that I was going into voiceover and by doing so, I was starting my own business. What the hell do I know about running a business? And um, so knowing that there, that if you go to the Berkeley School of Music, you can actually, um, did I get that name right? Berkeley School of Music, is that right? It's uh, Berkeley College, College of Music. Yeah, Berkeley yeah. College of Music, yeah. So um, so knowing that that if you go into music there, you can actually 
take courses that'll help you on the business end. That's good to know. It's certainly true in audiobooks as well. I know that a lot of people, yeah, I can read a book and uh, don't really think of it as a business. So that's cool. I'm sure you learned a lot in terms of uh, the production end going there. Yeah, I mean, I probably learned the most um, taking that taking that extra business major was definitely huge for me because, you know, production stuff, arguably, if I had took four years off and just produced music on my own, who knows where I would have ended up. Mm-hmm. But the business side, I don't know if I would have forced myself to learn that stuff. And also taking a class in accounting that was pretty brutal. Um, I took a class in entrepreneurship that was, you know, you literally built your own business plan and you created a business and I ended up creating the business that became the company that I started when I got out of college. So it was, it was very tracked for people that were trying to start something to, you know, it was a, it was a end of your college tour kind of class that you take and you form the thing that you're going to do when you get out of school. That's great. So what was that, uh, that you did? I mean, was that elephant or was that something else that sort of led you along the right path, but, but different than what you're doing now? No, it was pretty different. I mean, that was, that was actually a company called the bean music, which was, a just a, just a music production company. Um, I started at the same time I had met a guy in this town of Arlington, which got me started coming out to this town who owned a building here and was starting a music facility. I met him out here looking at the spaces and we got talking. I ended up partnering with him and helping him rent out all of the spaces. So it's a music, I think I was telling you this before the call, it's a music production, it's a music rehearsal facility. There's 18 rooms. A lot of them are studios, guys like me, single drummers, you know, it's a, it's a nicer place, but, um, you know, it's a music rehearsal facility. And because of that, because of that piece of real estate, I was able to kind of at least have some rooms that I could work in and start a production company. So that's, I started that in college and my last semester of college is when that facility started. So fortunately I had this really nice segue into, into some real estate that I could actually do, do work in right out of school. Yeah, that's fantastic. Finishing up with the uh, education that you were getting and being able to to um, hit the hit the ground running right then. Um, so, what did you do there exactly? Was it um, music production in terms of recording and uh, getting stuff out into the public and uh, marketing and all of that, or or was it something different? On the production side, um, yeah, I mean, it was recording recording. Um, it was very specific to the classes you were taking. So I took one class that was um, commercial audio production for animation. And I ended up doing a clip from Monsters, Inc. And I did all of the, but it was blank. It had no dialogue, no music, no nothing. And so I had to add all the dialogue, all the sound effects, all the music. And it was a short clip, I think three or four minutes long, but it took obviously took forever to create that. Um, there's a scene in Monsters, Inc. where they're they're running through a factory and all the doors are flying left and right. And that, that was the scene that I had to do. But th- wow. that's just an example. That's an example of one of the classes I had. And then other ones, like a final project class was I produced a three song project that I actually ended up writing the songs, um, performing some of them and got a bunch of my friends together to be the rest of the band. That's great. And so, uh, how long did you do that kind of work after, after college? Um, I'm, I'm wondering what the progression was until you actually started Elephant Audiobooks. I produced music up until at least 2012. I did my first audiobook in 2008. And I guess, I guess where the segue happened was, um, sort of at that same time when I was graduating from college, I was also working at a 
um, audiobook recording studio in Nashua, New Hampshire that did, they were part of the, um, library of Congress program doing talking books. Oh yeah. Uh So I was just an engineer that would go there and do like an eight hour day and go back home. I lived in Boston and I was driving up to New Hampshire, not every day, but you know, three or four times a week, um, an hour drive. Um, and that was, that was also at that time, that was part of my occupation too, to just kind of fill the, um, (laughs) fill the financial void. Oh yeah. We, we have all had those times. Most of us have had those times. (laughs) And it was, and it was honestly through that experience that I got referred to my first audiobook project, which was with, um, Gildan Media. Mm. Yeah. And then, and because they were, you know, a pretty decent sized producer, you know, I want to say they took a chance. I don't know. I want to say they took a chance on me, but they, they started throwing stuff my way and, you know, two projects here, two projects there. And, um, Eventually, I started also doing work with Audible Studios back then in 2008, 2009. And um, that was my that was kind of my beginning in audiobooks. So that was right around the time, I think maybe a little bit before everything kind of blew up for audiobooks, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it, w- it wasn't a it definitely wasn't a full time job, but the, the money was good. So as, as, as a guy who was, you know, an hour here, hour there, a few hours there recording, producing music, um, every time I got an audiobook, it was a. Uh, it was a good amount of money for me back big, then. Big win. Yeah. So, yeah, it was nice. So, so I, I, I don't know. I wasn't really, I, I, I sort of was on the outside of the inner scope of the industry up until I would say up until four or five years ago, I really didn't know what was going on aside from what was coming my way in, in emails. Mm-hmm. So what was the scope of the projects that you were working on at that point? This was, this was just you. It was, it was just uh, contract work where they would hire you and you would do whatever needed to be done. And there was, you wouldn't subcontract or anything else. Most of it was because I had a physical um, recording studio. They would send me authors that were going to narrate their own projects. Oh, so you were doing the recording. You were the recording engineer. And then what about after that? Did you do any of the post-production? Yeah, I did it as all in productions. I sort of, th- that's why, I mean, I sort of talked my way into doing these all in productions because originally they find, they found me as a recording studio that knew a thing or two about audiobooks, And I said, well, what about the, what about the post? Can I do that too? And they were like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess you can. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a big deal thing. And then when I got the job, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this now. Yeah. What a, what a great entree though. I mean, a, a great, um, a great way to get into the business that, that now you're doing full time. I, I assume that you're doing this full time at this point. Yeah. More than full time. <laughs> yeah. That happens sometimes. <laughs> no, it's good. It, it's very good right now. I'm definitely full time. So when did you start Elephant Audiobooks? I think Elephant Audiobooks, I had a company called Elephant Music Group. So that was, that, that's where Elephant the whole elephant name came from. Um, well, and where did it come from before that? Are you a fan of elephants or was it a joke or? I didn't really like the, <laughs> I didn't really like the company name I had before. And I was, it, it didn't come from anything. It came from a kid's toy. I have, I have, <laughs> I, I have three kids. And when one of my son, when my son was like one or two, I was looking to change the company name and I'm like, well, maybe this, or maybe that. And then I said, elephant music. I'm like, wait a minute. That's that's kind of cool. And I'm Googling it like, oh, no one used elephant. I really like elephants there. That's fantastic. <laughs> what, a, what a great origin story for a company name. It's a good thing you didn't happen to look at a, at a package of diapers. No. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so I'm sorry, you started the, uh, you started elephant. When did you say? I think it was probably 
2013 that I started doing audiobooks as Elephant Audiobooks full-time. Okay, so so up until that point, you had been working for um, Audible and uh, Gildan, and work was coming your way, and it was fairly steady, and it seemed like a, a good time to take off on your own. Yeah, it was getting to the point where, um, you know, I was having some personal life stuff too, so it was getting to the point where I was like, okay, I need to figure out what's what I'm doing. Am I going to do music? Am I going to do this? But yeah, I saw I, I definitely saw a path forward with audiobooks, and I, I took the chance on it. Cool. So how did you start? What was the what was the first thing that you did? Uh, I think the first thing I did, well, like I said, it was it was sort of a gentle transition. I, I very slowly just stopped saying yes to music clients. Mm-hmm. So I opened up my time a lot more to trying to communicate with other publishing companies. And I tried my best to, first thing I did was I joined um, APA. Good move. I, I went to APAC for the first time, which I guess was four years ago. That was my first APAC. Mm. It was probably the smartest thing I could have done. Yeah, no doubt. I'm sure you made a lot of connections there. Yeah, it was insane. And then from from there, it sort of took off. And, you know, I, I definitely had some struggles along the way. I was a little bit out. I would say, um, I mean, a few people know this. I was a little bit out of the game last year for a few months. I wasn't really doing audiobook work. But when I came back, um, you know, I came back a little bit stronger than I was before. So cool. And so when you started Elephant Audiobooks, the intention was full audiobook production. So you would have authors or um, rights holders or whoever it is come to you and say, make me an audiobook and you would handle everything. Yeah, that was the original intent was all was to do 100% all in productions. And at the time, was was it just you or were you hiring people to um, take on specific tasks or, you know, uh, hiring contractors or were you just initially doing it all yourself? I know that you have, uh, I don't know about, I don't know if they're contractors or employees, but I know that you work with other people now. Um, But at the time, was it just you? Yeah, oh yeah, very much so, just me. And then um, as as things progressed, I was you know working on different models, and I did end up working with um, one editor in particular really closely, and he did most of the edits, and I, I was trying to do mostly just the post production and the business side. He was doing most of the edits, so working through different models. But um, but for the most part, it was me, and it's and it's always just me doing the um, the mastering and the deliverables. I still do all that myself. So what's the um, what's the workload like at this point? It sounds like things have gone well in the whatever it is seven years that that Elephant has been uh, an entity. Um, what's what's the workload like? How many how many projects do you take on? How how many top to bottom projects do you take on at this point? It's hard to say because we do we do so much of just edit QC master work now for people. That's become. Um, primarily i would say 80 percent of our business now oh, is actually no not kidding. is not the all-in production but it's the it's the post-production work for major publishers so when did that shift happen and 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 i i guess i'm thinking why did that happen where you were the the plan was full audiobook production and then you started getting um piece work i guess from the bigger houses um how did that how did that take place well, I mean, like I said, last year I, I wasn't working on audiobooks for a few months. I was sort of out, I, I was still doing projects, but I was really just kind of ghost producing all these projects and pushing them off to freelancers, um, people that I trusted, but I just wasn't taking part of them myself. Um, so when I came back, I was trying to figure out what's the best way to fill my own schedule, you know, fulfill my own dreams, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, and, yeah. you know, I, I had also made a couple of connections. Um, I met some people at 
a couple of the major publishing houses uh, within that time period. So I just reached out to them and said, hey, I'm I'm open for post-production edit work and I'm open for full production work. And a couple of people called me back and said, oh, I didn't realize you wanted edit work. And it went from there that and now I've now some of my major clients are people that originated from those conversations. Well, that's great. And you said that you do all of the mastering and and the business side. So um, are you still doing the other stuff as well? Are you still a recording engineer? Are you still doing the editing as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably edit. I don't edit as much as some of the other guys, but I probably edit two finished hours per weekday, at least on top of all my mastering and um, post-production and business stuff that I do as well. Cool. So since you've done all the different jobs, you can go ahead and do whatever needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, in, in theory, yeah, except for narrating, which I guess is, is um, <laughs> I'm not really interested in narrating, but I it's, that's the last piece that I haven't done. Um, well, that's interesting that you're not interested in it. I, I totally get that. I know a lot of um, people, even even voice actors, who are not interested in audiobooks in the least. Um, I always find that interesting when, uh, you know, there are so many different pieces to this work, just like, just like there are for most other types of work as well that you never see, you never think about. You see a finished product and you think, oh, so here's this, you know, whatever it is, loaf of bread. And you don't think about the fact that, well, you have to get the plastic for the loaf. You have to get it printed. You have to have somebody who actually bakes it. There's somebody else who probably slices it. Somebody shoves it into the bag. You have to get it to the market. You know, there's all these different pieces, just like in audiobooks. You have to record it. You have to get it to the distributors and all the different pieces. Um, And so it's interesting to me when I hear that that somebody is doing this and they're not interested in the piece that I'm doing. And conversely, I'm not interested in the piece that they're doing. And so it works <laughs> out great. <laughs> it does work out great. And to be honest, I'm not, I, I edit because I have to, I would, I would like to not edit as much. I mean, that, that's the one piece that I'm not, you know, it's, it's super tedious. Everybody knows that, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a way, it's a way of life for engineers and audiobook world. And that was something that I, I really had to to come to grips with at the end later part of last year was, um, you know, if people want to fill my schedule with edit work and I can also get full production work as it comes, um, it's a much better way to financially make things work for myself and it has been working. So it's great. Yeah, no, that, that's cool. Once again, you, you do what you need to do. And so if that is the type of work that comes in, even if it's not your favorite, I mean, there are certainly things, certainly aspects of the work that I've done in the past several years where I think, oh, not again. Well, okay. It's, it's, uh, it's a book. It's a job. Yeah. You're never going to like it all. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I hate doing, um, QC sheets and putting together pickup packets, but mm. I don't, I don't think anybody really likes that part of the job. And nobody likes doing the pickups either. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure you guys hate doing the pickups. So. <laughs> I, it's, there, it's... there was one post at one point in the not too distant past. I think it was, I don't know, three or six months ago. And somebody said that they were actually, you know, looking forward to getting in the booth to do these pickups. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> crazy. You're a crazy person. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, anyway, well, well, that's cool. So you can do all the different pieces. So um, so it sounds like one of the things that you enjoy more is the mastering. Yeah. And, and I and I enjoy the full production too, being able to, to, to cast and really pull the whole thing together. But I, I do like um, finalizing the project and being the one to to send the final deliverables. Cool. That's yeah. a piece, that's a piece that I like. Yeah. I've been, I've been starting to like it more and more. Oh, that's great. And so I hadn't even thought about that when you're doing the full production, it's not just a matter of 
putting together an audiobook, I mean, the, one of the pieces to that is casting it. So you do casting. Um, do, yep. is, is casting one of the things that you do for some of your other uh, publishing house clients as well? A couple of them, yeah. I do um, I do all in production for a couple of the uh, major publishers. Um, so yeah, the, and it's the same sort of process. Actually, that's how I met you was through um, casting for one of those guys. Yeah, well, because you were working on something that I was doing for somebody else, and yep. uh, you had this other project, and as I well, liked it, so. and I said, "Hey, why don't we? Why don't you try out for this one?" Yeah, and I didn't get it, but that happens all the time. <laughs> <And> you so. <laughs> didn't get it, which stinks because I was rooting for you. But yeah, well, I appreciate that's how that. it goes. It, it it's never, does. It's never my choice, so I, I, I can at least. Um, I can always deflect. <laughs> yeah, pawn it off on the uh, on the actual client. No, that that is absolutely the way it goes. I, I you know, I am always appreciative of just having the opportunity uh, when one of those things comes along just to to audition for it. Um, but uh, but that's cool. So, in terms of the audiobooks that you typically take on, um, is Elephant known for anything specific? Do you, do you have a specialty, or are you filling a niche, or are you simply an audiobook production company that will work on pretty much anything? I would say originally we we did have a niche of working with um, working with authors who wanted to narrate or produce their own books, but mm-hmm. I don't think that's I don't think that's the case anymore. But that used to be that used to be the case by and large, just because of the way that um, clients were hiring us. Mm-hmm. Well, and, yeah, I would, and you I mentioned that you were doing that originally too. Yeah, that's how we got our start, and we and we you know we use that to market ourselves. Like this is how we got our start. Our first book we did was with a, an author narrating their own audiobook, and we've done a couple hundred authors. Um, you know the the whole pitch thing. It was it was a nice way to sell the company, but um, yeah, a couple hundred. That's quite a few. Yeah, well, it's it's. I mean, it's been a bunch of years. Yeah, but still, that's um, <laughs> you know one of the, one of the things that. I often see online is, yeah, authors shouldn't narrate their own works. And what I've learned after talking to Jamie Matler and some authors who have worked with Jamie and worked with other coaches as authors that are going to narrate their own works is that it really isn't true that that authors shouldn't narrate their own work. What is true is that authors should learn how to narrate their own work and then narrate their own work. Right. (laughs) So, uh, so that's very cool. If if you've been able to work with authors and uh, get them to uh, be able to narrate their own stuff, I'm, I'm, I have to imagine that for most authors, that's a fairly rewarding experience. Actually, getting to voice what it is that you've had in your head the whole time. Yeah, and you know, the books we're doing are in the beginning primarily were marketing or business books by people who were keynote speakers and people who knew how to, you know, they knew what they were doing to begin with. So Ah, you put them in front of them. This was a little bit, I guess, before the early ones were before the time where there was heavy podcasting. But if anybody was doing a podcast, these would be the kind of guys that would have a podcast as well. So they, they weren't shy. There was definitely some rough ones along the way, as you can imagine with, with authors that sort of just want to do it regardless. But, um, it is what it is. And um, I think in terms of people saying authors should or authors shouldn't, I go on both sides because I've had both experiences. But when you look at what the audiences want and when you look at who's actually winning like the Audi Awards and these sorts of things, there's a lot of author narrated books and maybe they're famous people, but there, there's a lot of author narrated books in, in those categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, well, that's cool that, that you've done that many of those. Um, what about anything that you wouldn't take on? I mean, if somebody came to you, whether it was a big publishing house or just a, you know, a one-off rights holder, anything that you wouldn't do? No, I don't think so. Yeah. 
No, I mean, I, I, I sort of, certain things that I maybe wouldn't want to discuss here, but there's, there are things I would maybe draw the line, but, um, I'm pretty open to subject matter. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you mentioned the, the, um, space that you're in right now, the, the booth, what about, uh, how, how much of the work that you do is outside of your home? I know that these days, especially, but even before the big, uh, pandemic, most of the people in this industry were, or a lot of the people in this industry were working out of their homes. Uh, what do you do most of the work that you do on the audiobooks that you produce? I try to work in my studio all as much as possible. I try, I never really worked at home at all before the, um, before the quarantine situation. Mm. And why is that a choice? Is it just, uh, easier to focus? Yeah. Well, I have kids and yeah, easier to focus. And it's just, you know, just, I have my own space that I can come down. It's sound treated. It's, it's quiet. I, I don't, I, I don't mind being by myself down here. It's, um, it's my, my sort of my peaceful place to be and work. Yeah, that's good. That's, uh, that's, that's really helpful. I know that working from home can be a real two-edged sword. Hey, I got the freedom. I can schedule my time. And then all of a sudden your time is all gone because you do all the other things that happen around the house. Um, so. It was definitely, a, it was a cool change for a couple months, to be honest. And my, my wife owns her own business. So she was, um, while we were in the um, quarantine state, she was working. We were both in my base, the basement of our house. I was in an office room and she was on the other side of the door taking phone calls and doing her thing. So it was kind of cool to sort of work, work with her for a couple months. Um, and I got a lot done, but you know, after, as soon as I was allowed to get out of there, um, I came back to the studio. Yeah. Little, little change in productivity there. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so, uh, on the mastering end, uh, just to, for the, the, uh, tech nerds out there, yes. uh, walk me through a little bit what your take is on some of the important aspects of getting an audiobook mastered so that it sounds great. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, just kind of the, the overall, I don't, <laughs> I don't need the actual, you know, settings on your compressor, but you know, what, right, what do right, you think right. are the important tools to use and what are the most important things when it comes to getting a great, great sound for a finished product? I mean, obviously the, the first thing is to get a good, um, a good recording on the source end. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if the audio that we're provided is noisy or whatever else, it's going to be really tough for us to do anything with it. Um, all that being said, and I, and I say that because now that we're working with major publishing houses and getting home recording stuff from, you know, 10, 15, 20 projects a month, we're seeing, we're hearing varying, varying degrees of quality in what people, um, deliver even at the really high, high level. Yeah, no doubt. So, so I would say at the very least getting your, getting your noise floor in check and just making sure that you have, you have your settings in a way that's going to make it easier for the editor to kind of go through it. That's on the delivery side. And on the mastering side, you know, if, if all that is done, if all the recording is done in a way what I just kind of explained, the mastering side's really all about getting the levels where they're supposed to be for ACX or Audible or whoever else and um, maybe doing a little EQ. You know, cu I cut the low end. I don't know how specific you want me to be, but... No, that's good. That's good. I, I, I like hearing, and I think a lot of the people listening like to hear some of the specifics that people yeah. think are important. Uh, some some people who are doing this for higher level clients than one-off authors um, who, who want to know what is considered best practice? What do the engineers do who are delivering audio to 
Hachette or Macmillan or, um, right. you know, uh, PRH. So, so yeah, um, you know, um, getting the levels right, using EQ, that's fine. Uh, and, One you know, thing I would say, too, is going easy on um, going easy on expanders. I've been hearing a lot of, like, really drastic expansion recently, and um, hmm. it, it just doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> yeah. I think you, you can... You can dial the range back just a little bit, and uh, I don't know it. It it's a it's a tool that can definitely be helpful, and I do use them all the time in a very soft, very easy way. But um, I've been hearing some kind of drastic ones recently that that end up stuff end up coming up in pickups to a, to a point where things get cut off or, or sucked out because the expanders um you know hitting too soon or sucking everything way way too low going to like minus 120 db stuff like that sorry i just hit my desk yeah no that's fine um i i know that in online uh i see a lot and i post quite frequently when anybody mentions a gate i say don't ever use a gate uh that's the wrong that's the wrong word yeah if if you if you need to do something use an expander don't ever use a gate and unfortunately if you use an expander with the settings, you know, too much in one direction, you're pretty much approaching a gate. <laughs> they're the same. I mean, they're the exact same tool. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Just how how one, it's... one has an infinity and one one has a, you know, has a range, and that, that's why I mean, it's it's the range I think that people are doing is they they're having the when the expander turns on, you know, instead of it pulling down six dB, they're pulling down like twenty dB, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely gives a bit of an unnatural sound. Yeah, six dB is a perceived doubling in sound, just mm-hmm. for all the kids out there. So if you if you <laughs> if you want to reduce the, your noise floor and you want it to sound, you know, two times quieter, you, you only really have to bring it down. I believe six dB. If, if those are the right, I may be getting that wrong, but um, that's at least what I remember from school. Yeah, it's uh, whatever it is. It's not very much, and uh, and so I know that uh, that that comes up a lot, and it just sounds yep. very unnatural going to virtual silence. Um, as, oh yeah, as opposed to room tone or anything else. Um, so that's good. And EQ is that a, another one that you tend to uh, use a light touch on? Yeah, because most of the audio we get in most of the microphones people are using are are definitely capturing their voice in a, a way that's you know, good enough. There's definitely some sweetening going on, but nothing extreme. Not unless it was, sounds like it was recorded, you know, in somebody's like bathroom or kitchen, <laughs> which has happened because of, because of the quarantine conditions. We, there's a couple project came in and we got warnings like, look, this person doesn't usually home record. We had to do this. So let's, let's do the best we can. And, yeah. and we did the best we could and it was good, but it was, you know, a little touch and go in the beginning. Yeah. They had one option, so they took it. Yeah, it's fine. No, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. Um, so, where do you see Elephant going in the future? You know, you you've been from um, doing full production at the at the beginning to then uh, working with more people and now doing most of your work uh, as piecework for other larger production houses. Where where do you see things going? What what do you want to have happen? I mean, ideally, doing in house productions and people coming to us directly is is the best for us for financially and control and just creatively. Um, So ideally I'd like to be doing all of our own in-house full productions. But that being said, you know, I like doing any type of all in full production. So if any of the big production houses want to start hiring us more to do more of those, which we do do some for them, we'd be happy to transition to more full production and less um, edit work. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also, I'm also sort of in the thought process of, um, publishing a few audiobooks 
through Elephant, um, but that's really a, a distant thought, I think, at this point. Uh, what do you mean by that? What does that look like? Well, I mean, finding a book and approaching the author and trying to actually produce the audio book um, for oh, them. Oh, got it. From, the, from yeah. the ground floor. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be cool. Certainly sounds like you got all the skills to be able to do that. Well, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking. And, and I, I, with my background in music, I sort of want to, I want to try to find, I want to try to find projects that are somehow music related and tie that all in together. Music related. What kind of projects that are music related? Well, I don't know if you, if you find any, let me know. I mean, that's, where that, <laughs> that's literally where I'm at is, you know, I think like anything from people that have been in bands to people that have, you know, a cool story about somebody who went to a uh, festival for a weekend or somebody who was, uh, you know, a roadie for a band or I don't know, just, just any type of audiobook that's kind of in and wrapped in and around the music world, I got guess. Got it. Got it. No, so it could be fiction, could be nonfiction. Um, I'm super open to it, but I, I also think it would be really cool. It doesn't seem like anybody else is doing anything quite like that. Um, and no, like I said, I, it's, I, it, it's I, a distant I, thought. I'm not even sure where I would find these books at this point. That's where I'm at, but I, I think it would be a cool idea, um, in the future. It is. No, I, I totally see that. And I, I met, I remember, I think it was two years ago at the Tucson festival of books, um, back when we could have in-person festival of books, yeah. um, where I met somebody who had written a book that was sort of a roadie memoir, um, and he had worked cool. for a bunch of different bands. So I, I think that the material is there. There's just probably not very much of it. And so finding it and, you know, having the right project probably will be difficult to find, but it, it definitely sounds cool. And I can totally see how somebody with a music background would love that. I always, I know that when I end up getting a book that is, um, somehow interesting to me personally, it makes the project so much more enjoyable it's not that I don't like doing the books that are this genre or that genre. It's just that when it happens to be this particular topic that I have a lot of experience with or I'm really interested in, you just it, it makes it so much easier, so much more fun. So I, I totally get how with a music background, doing a project like that would be a, a good fit. Yeah, it's funny because that, that's sort of how I feel with um... – I like editing history books. I get I get so sucked into the stories, and it's it sounds crazy because sometimes they can be you know a little dry and boring for some people. But I get I get so pulled in. Those are the ones that I will stay up all night editing versus some others where I'll do you know an hour of work and be like, oh, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, no, that's that. I totally get that. I I like history now so much more than I did. And in fact, specifically since we're talking about music, the reason that I stopped being a music major in college was music history. I started failing my music history classes because oh, I wow. just didn't give a shit. And and I find that really unfortunate now because now I think about things and I go, I would love to know more about Mozart and his life and about, right. you know, how the Baroque music came about and why it shifted this way and that way. But at the time, I could just not care less. I was all about the music theory, but I knew that there's no way I can get this music degree if I don't go through my five quarters of music history. So I ended up bailing. 
that was you know that's that's not with music history but it's a, a similar experience with a lot of people at berkeley i think that i think the freshman dropout rate there is like 70 percent, and it's just because people come in with uh, an idea of what they want to do then they realize oh there's a there's a whole lot of prerequisites to this um yeah. to this idea that i have <laughs> and they bail and it's not cheap so you know th there's probably a lot of people who say i, I don't want to pay for this again uh, and i get that 100 percent um yeah but yeah it's like you said um Ear training, solfege, that's the one that kills a lot of drummers, you know, learning mm. how to sing do, re, mi, fa, sol, all that stuff. And yeah. um, but actually doing it for real and singing it to music. And we have to do four semesters of that. Wow. Yeah, that that's going to be a lot for somebody where that's not their primary interest. So, yeah, I had a, um, my roommate who was my best friend in college was a drummer and all the drummers were having such a hard time. It, you know, it's just, it's impossible for a drummer to to catch on to that when all their when their their whole life is you know the beating on things yeah. beating on things to tempo it's a totally different world yeah yeah very much so um yeah well well that's cool um doing the history stuff uh so history history and music and i'm sure that if you had a project that was music history it'd be that much better yeah that would be really cool <laughs> you know one of my favorite projects i did was called um marketing lessons of the grateful dead marketing lessons of the oh my gosh and it was, you know, it was, it was literally that it was the two guys, um, two authors that they were, um, tech consultants or tech company owners, I guess you'd say. And they, yeah, they, they pulled all the lessons that they learned from the Grateful Dead and equated it to kind of their world. And it's an awesome book. I, I recommend it to a lot of people, but they ended up going on tour. They ended up getting a booth and going on tour with the Grateful Dead and having a little um, author signing booth at you know all the shows along the tour stop. How so they funny. they sort of lived out their dream. But that was a cool one. Yeah, that that would be. I I can imagine. I've only been to one Dead concert in my life, but quite an experience. Um, so <laughs> having having a booth set up. I don't remember seeing them at the time, but this was way back in the uh, late eighties. So. Anyway, that's, uh, that's all very cool. So, uh, you know, like you said, working full-time and more than full-time, what do you do when you're not uh, producing audiobooks? Uh, well, I have three kids. That's got to take some time. I hang out with them a lot. Um, I listen to music, hang out with my wife. I don't have too, too many hobbies at the moment just because I have been working kind of a lot. I, I take care of a lot of house plants. <laughs> <laughs> got any studio, weekends, studio plans to go along with that? Not in my studio. My studio is <laughs> in a, a vault in a basement. Uh, but um, but yeah, and you know, in the summer we try to we try to take off and go um, to the coast as much as we can. Uh, being in Massachusetts, and that that's about it for right now. Yeah. Well, uh, it's it's a difficult time right now. There are a lot of people who aren't doing a whole lot of things outside of work related activities, um, and for a lot of people who aren't working in audiobooks and similar industries, it's even harder, uh, you know, depending on what the job actually entails. So many people out of work right now. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely tough for a lot of people. So I felt, um, felt fortunate to get a little bit of, um, actually get a little bit of a, a boost in March when I was just starting to go to work from home mode. Um, so it was, it was good and bad. I felt bad for other people, happy for myself. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's always a tough one. Um, things are when, when so many people are, are hurting, it's tough to have the good thing, but then you got to be happy about it as well. So definitely. Brings... It seems like, 
It seems like all the audiobook friends are doing good though, which is um which is a plus. Yeah, I I have seen that and I've been very happy that uh, that a lot of my friends seem to be doing pretty well. So, so yeah. that's great. Yep. Um so since part of what you do is casting, uh, both for full production that you do as well as for full production that you do for a client, um, do you have some kind of a roster? Do you have a mechanism for people to get in touch with you if they'd like to be considered for an audiobook? Um, is there enough work at this point to where you're looking for more narrators? Uh, what, what's that situation like? Yeah, I'm always, I'm definitely always looking to meet new people and new narrators. Um, and we do have a roster. It's, it's sort of, a, I mean, I have a list of like 300 names, so it's a little bit of an insane roster at this point. Um, mm-hmm. I do all the casting myself and most of it honestly is people I know, people I'm either loosely friends with or worked with before, you know, work with on Facebook or like you, um, I edited on another project for somebody else and said, Hey, make note of this guy. He's good. Right. Um, you, you end up finding somebody accidentally. That's been happening a couple times recently. And, and, you know, I, I hope it's okay with, with, I'm sure it's fine with them, but you know, some of my clients, I, I work on projects and I'm like, well, this guy's really good. I gotta, I gotta make sure I make note of him. And, um, like the instance with you, I just so happened at the very same time was casting and, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit intuitive, um, not to be cheesy, but I, I, my process is just, it's my process. I, I do the casting myself. So sometimes I hear something, I know I have a project and I send somebody a message. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, a lot of what I've been doing for casting recently is, um, I've been casting most people through Facebook messenger Oh. Which is sort of funny, but it's people, everybody's on Facebook and everybody's sort of active. And even if it's somebody that I know and maybe have their email, I'll send them a little message and say, hey, I have this project. Um, are you interested in it? They say yes or no. And then I'll, I'll email them the formal thing. And it, it, it seemed it, for me, it's a little faster. I get a little bit of a faster response. I have noticed lately since I, I took a social media break a while back and a couple of months ago, maybe. And then I came back online and now I'm online way too much. Um, but it seems to me from what I've seen lately that probably a lot of other people can say that too. I assume it has something to do with the pandemic. I'm not really sure, but it does seem like a lot of people are on Facebook a lot of the time. So what I have, uh, I've got a friend in a completely different business who doesn't use Facebook, but he does use Facebook Messenger. And I've decided that no matter how much time I end up spending on Facebook, I will definitely keep the messenger pipeline open because a yeah. lot of people right now seem to be using that as a primary way to get a hold of people. It's just so much faster. And, and there was there was just to give an example, there was um, somebody I spoke with last week who, you know, and this this just goes to show how I hate to say that it, having an online presence is important, but at least for me and the way I do things, it is because this person was posting, hey, I got I got this gig and I'm I got cast for this. And I, I looked her up and I said, oh, she's cool. I don't I don't have I don't have any of her stuff. And I messaged her and said, hey, do you want to send me your audition? I I, I at least want to have um, or your demos. I'm sorry. I at least want to have it on my file. And she did right away. So that's that's kind of how I've been how I've been doing things. Just people I meet through the grapevine. At this point, since my list is so big, anybody new is somebody I most people I meet either on Facebook or through the grapevine through a referral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Or they email me. I mean, people do so many people email me. And I honestly, for anybody that listens, I I try my best to check out all the narrators that email me. Um, 
we do eventually go back through the emails and catalog everybody, but I, I can't, I, I honestly can't keep up with the narrator emails I get. Hard to do. Yeah. I'm it's sure. hard. I get, I get, you know, I get a couple, not a couple a day, but I definitely get a handful a week where, you know, I, I could easily, I usually email them back and say, Hey, thanks. But it's, it's just hard. So eventually we do check out everybody and catalog everybody. That's cool. That, and I try to follow, I try to follow everyone's progress the best I can, but the names are, um, the names are stacking up at this point. It's a lot of people. Yeah, there are with, with that many people doing this work. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that is, that is pretty tough. Um, well, so Kenny, what do you think are, is maybe the most one or two most important things that, that you would say narrators should be aware of and focus on, um, when they're going through the process of getting more work as a narrator, as somebody who has been on the, um, who has been, who has done all of the jobs involved with getting an audiobook produced, uh, what do you think are the most important things? I mean, on, on my end and from, from what I do on the post side, first, first and foremost, definitely getting your, and everybody will probably say that I'm wrong about this, but getting your setup sounding a certain way is important, especially if you're somebody who's starting with nothing. Um, definitely trying to make sure you have the right sound for the work. Um, that's going to help way more than I think. I don't know. That's going to help a lot, especially if you're somebody who says, how do I get set up? What do I do? What do I need to buy? Definitely get setting up, set up correctly. Um, coaching, everybody sells coaching for narrators. I think that's super important. We've actually done coaching for authors that are narrating their own books. Mm -hmm. And um, that's been ridiculously helpful. Sean Pratt's actually been doing that for me for the past two or three years. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. So, and and, and and he'll tell you any author that goes through it is is more than happy to pay what they paid for it, and they um you know they come out with a way better product. So I think if if an author has that kind of experience, somebody who's already has skills could could only benefit more from it. Um, I know. And then on the and then on the audition side, I, I mean, just getting the auditions. Um, I get a lot of flat reads. I, I, I hate to say that too, but I, I get a lot of, I think I get a lot of auditions that I don't feel like necessarily are showing what I know that person can show in that material. Mm -hmm. So I guess not rushing the audition process and because it is important and, and we're only listening to a very short snippet of it unless we hear something we want to hear. Then we listen to a little more. It's like anything in entertainment. You know, your 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 attention span is only so long, and yep. the more entertain the more entertaining you are, the longer your your attention span is. And for me, with auditions, that's that's kind of how I rate it. Is are you are you keeping my attention? Yeah, it's just like commercial VO auditions, commercial VO demos. If you don't grab the person who you send it to in the first five seconds, the next the next fifty five seconds don't matter. <laughs> Yeah, and I hate I hate to be that guy because um but but I would say as far as the auditioning process in my experience um over the past at least the past year um you know getting getting the read solid and and even delivering it with a little bit of mastering if if you have a stack or some kind of processing that you do on your end um I don't on my end I don't typically master the auditions that come my way I I I let them kind of speak for themselves so that may be different for other people, but either ask or or send something that's very lightly mastered. So it's got, you just want your voice to sound the way it's going to sound when it's when it's finished. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm, um, I actually haven't spoken about this with a lot of people that are in your position um, of listening to the auditions that come in. Uh, I mean, I've, I've spoken with several people who do casting, but we haven't talked about this particular issue. Um, I always master my auditions, and I think that most people do as well. Um, but then, it, I mean, audiobooks are a very different world from commercial but I know that there are some agents who say, you know, I expect raw audio when you send me an audition. And there are other agents that'll say, no, absolutely, make it sound the best that you can. So um, it's kind of all over the map. I would think that in audiobooks, it is more common to want an audition to have at least enough mastering to clean it up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that that's kind of my point. I think most people do. But on occasion and on occasion, people will ask. And I think I think asking is is fine, too. Yeah, I I would say that that's true in general. I have never had a problem with somebody reacting negatively to me asking how they want something. Right. <laughs> so it's it's always better. And and I know that the the fear is there. Well, but if I ask, then they'll think I don't know what I'm doing. And if they think I don't know what I'm doing, they're not going to take me seriously. And and so I I know that that's the fear. But I have never right. had a problem asking what somebody is looking for so that I can give them what they're looking for. <laughs> Yeah, and and to that person, I'd say I don't I don't know what you're worrying about because you you already got the gig. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you ask a simple question, you know you're gonna get a don't don't ask a stupid question. You'll you'll get a stupid answer. But if you ask a simple <laughs> question, they're gonna give you a simple answer and they'll they'll move on. You know. Yeah, yeah. Now that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> All right. Well, Kenny, this has been great. Thanks so much for coming in. I uh, I hope the IPA was good. Yeah, it was. A um. Tell me tell me what that is again. A a, a disaster. What? <laughs> you know, it, it came from a like a multi twelve pack, and this the stores we have around here are actually pretty good beer selection. But it's Twenty First Amendment Brewing, which is out of oh, I'm going to say it wrong San San Leandro, California. San California. Leandro, I actually lived in San Leandro. I can't believe that there is a brewery in San Leandro. All right, good. So I said that right. That blows me away. Yeah, I spent <laughs> and, four years in San Leandro. And it's a hazy IPA. Hazy IPA. But what was the what was the name of it? The um, it's called a terrible idea. And a terrible idea. That's it. That's at it. the top. It says, after inventing the triangle wheel, we began to wonder if it was a terrible idea. <laughs> I hope that the IPA was not a terrible idea. <laughs> now was a good choice. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I I can say that the uh, spiced rum cocoa martini was quite good. It not the kind of thing I would have all that often. A little sweet for me, but. Um, it is uh, definitely a tasty drink. And so although I don't think that Captain Morgan is going to surpass my favorite rum at this point, uh, it certainly makes a decent drink. Nice. Yeah, it does sound a little intense. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, I love the chocolate. I'm a, I, I would eat, I would subsist on a diet of uh, corn chips and chocolate if I could. But um, <laughs> it's just, it's a bit much for the, for the sweetness. Um, so, Kenny, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you, if they want to talk to you about the whole uh, I'm a narrator and you should know about me kind of thing, or if they want to know more about Elephant or if they want to send somebody your way? Yeah, so they can definitely email us at info at elephantaudiobooks.com. That's also our website, www.elephantaudiobooks.com. I'm on Facebook a lot. My name again is Kenny Papaconstantino. You can, if you're friends with a bunch of narrators and you type in Kenny P, odds are I will come up in the search. <laughs> and feel, feel free to friend request me. If I if I see you're a narrator and you're in that world, I will accept the friend request um, if you start 
posting a bunch of crazy stuff, I may unfriend you. But um, aside from that, I'm happy to take I'm happy to be friends with all you guys. And and anybody that wants to email me and ask me about sending demos or anything like that, I'm, I'm always happy to hear from people and meet new people. That's great. That's great. It's good to hear. Kenny P. All right. Kenny P. I'll just leave it at that so I don't have to say your last name again and get it wrong. No. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Kenny. Really appreciate your time. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh-huh. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Kenny Papaconstantino for coming in. I enjoyed hearing about his music background and how that led him to found Elephant Audiobooks, and I hope you did too. Don't forget to check out the sponsor for tonight's episode, Squeaky Cheese Productions. They're on the cutting wedge. They're on the web at squeakycheeseproductions.com, and I'm very grateful for their support of the audiobook speakeasy. As always, you can find the audiobook speakeasy on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the usual apps. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please take a few minutes to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you'd add a buck or two to the tip jar. You can make a per-episode donation by signing up at patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy, or you can make a one-time donation by visiting paypal.me slash audiobookspeakeasy. Any financial support is greatly appreciated as it helps me keep the lights on here in the speakeasy. Until we see you here in the speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!